Social media companies have a significant role to play in doing a better job of ensuring that they address the hate and vitriol and violence because we need more diversity in politics. And the last thing you want is that folks decide they're not going to run because of the attacks they will get. That's Catherine McKenna, former Canadian Environment and Industry Minister and Honorary Fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. She's our guest on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. We're talking to Catherine McKenna today for a bunch of reasons. First, there are few people more passionate about the fight against climate change than she is. So we'll get into where things stand after the Glasgow Climate Conference. And on the 100th anniversary of Agnes McPhail becoming the first woman elected to the House of Commons, we also wanted to get McKenna's take on the benefits and challenges of being a female politician in the age of social media. In office, and still today, she is a regular target of often vicious online trolling. Born in Hamilton and trained as a lawyer, as Environment Minister McKenna was the lead Canadian negotiator and signatory to the Paris Climate Accord, she also introduced carbon pricing in Canada. So, without further ado, Catherine McKenna, thanks so much for coming on the Canadian Geographic Explore podcast. It's great to join. I want to start out, you've obviously retired from politics, but you're still in, very involved in the environmental side of things, and you were at the Glasgow Climate Conference. And I'm just wondering what your takeaway was from that being on the civilian side this time, and the sort of overall sense of these major conferences, it's never quite enough, but what was your feeling coming out of there? Well, I mean, I think people have to manage ex- expectations a bit in the sense that, I mean, these climate conferences don't reduce emissions themselves. Emissions are reduced um, by action uh, through countries and municipalities and businesses. Um, but they are really important because they almost they have the attention of the whole world to see, OK, how are we tracking and how is the world doing? And countries, just to go back to the Paris Agreement in 2021, There was an agreement for the first time ever that every country agreed to a temperature target that we needed to stay well below two degrees, striving for 1.5 degrees, and that every country needed to do their part. So these conferences are very useful because, one, it increases ambition. I think there was a lot of pressure on countries to do more, and you saw Canada increase its target. So Canada already has a plan to exceed, uh, to reduce emissions by 30%, so they went to 40%. So that was obviously a positive thing, and you saw that with other countries. And then you also saw initiatives that were announced at COP that weren't necessarily about one particular country, but an area of focus. So uh, there was a lot of focus on getting countries off coal and significant investments with a lot of ambition to do it a lot faster. So I think that was very positive. On the side that was less positive, uh, I mean, we're just not there. We do not have enough action by countries that will keep us uh, at 1.5 degrees. And if you go above that, then uh, the challenges is, is a number of countries, especially uh, small island developing states, will be in very serious trouble, including some being underwater. We have a lot more work to go, but I do think that, that you know, the, the COP26 showed significant progress, but now everyone really needs to do the work. And that's what I'm really focused on personally. How do we scale climate and nature solutions? So I think getting countries off coal really, really quickly or protecting, well, and protecting very large uh, pieces of nature is going to be an important part of that. And that's something I want to focus on. Part of the reason we wanted to talk to you today, too, is as one of Canada's more prominent political figures, it's a, it's the 100th anniversary of Agnes McPhail becoming the first woman elected to the House of Commons. And obviously, things have progressed 
in terms of women being elected office uh, since 1921, but uh, there are still a lot of challenges. Your career, unfortunately, sort of highlights those specifically with social media and kind of trolling that you experience. I'm just, what what is it like to be a woman in politics today, and how do we make that as inclusive a place as possible? Well, I think, look, it's, uh, I mean, it's a huge honor to be in politics. I mean, I'm no longer in politics, mm-hmm. but I, I really felt that because you can make a real difference. And uh, hopefully I was able to make, you know, some contributions during my time as Minister of Environment and Climate Change and then Infrastructure. But it is challenging. And this is something that I am committed to taking on even post-politics um, is the uh, the hate, uh, the misogyny. Um, online, uh, directed towards often towards women, but it, it can be directed towards a whole variety of folks, especially if you are, you know, a visible minority, um, if you are a member of the LGBTQ2 plus community, if you're indigenous. Um, and we really need to change that because we need more diversity in politics. And the last thing you want is that folks decide they're not going to run uh, because of, uh, you know, the attacks they will get. There also seems to be something very strange, which is those uh, that if you are, at least in my experience, a woman in politics who also works on climate change, mm-hmm. there's a whole other level of vitriol. And uh, that is a challenge, right? We just need good people to get into politics. I I have called it out at times. Uh, I mean, I didn't spend every minute of every day. It would be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think Canadians uh, are willing to accept the treatment, especially online. And uh, and I think, you know, social media companies have a significant role to play um, in doing a better job of, uh, you know, ensuring that they, they address the hate and vitriol and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, because the problem is we are also, it's not just online, we are seeing that it it will, you know, it has a tendency to go offline as well. Um, so in-person attacks, which is obviously hugely problematic. I mean, at what point, I mean, just looking at the whistleblower, recent whistleblower situation with Facebook and what Facebook's reaction was to that. And it, Facebook in particular doesn't seem all that keen to regulate itself in a way that's meaningful and that the algorithm is still feeding hate groups into hate groups and congregating them. And I'm just wondering, if are we reaching a point where there does need to be some sort of government regulation? A hundred percent. I mean, look, if you can't regulate yourself, then that's when government certainly has the role to play. And, you know, the, the companies have the algorithms. Um, the companies are able to identify unacceptable behavior, but often they don't because their business model is focused on, you know, how many likes and retweets. And, uh, and we've seen that if you, uh, on Facebook, Uh, It came out recently, thanks to the whistleblower, that if you dislike something, you're more likely, I think five times more likely for it to be promoted. So we're actually helping people hate more, (laughs) which is really, I don't think what, maybe what the intention was, I hope, when these companies were started, but they're just so big now and they have such a pervasive influence on folks' lives. And with that comes great responsibility and they're not willing to step up. I think that's really where government needs to step in. So what advice do you have to women coming into politics or considering a career in politics now? Do it. Uh, we need more women in politics. We're not going to change things uh, by having less women in politics. I was kind of laughing because I, I mean, I use social media often, mm-hmm. especially Twitter. I kind of like the ability to see what's going on and participate in conversations, even though there is a fair bit of negativity. But I posted a picture 
um, of Parliament, you know, it wouldn't, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, but it wouldn't have looked, you know, that it hasn't changed as drastically as we'd like. But but I posted a picture of Parliament where it was all men um, and everyone working in Parliament was male. And then a picture of uh, the Liberal benches, but they had Karina, there was Karina Gould, who was uh, the first cabinet minister to have a baby while as a, a minister, and she was breastfeeding in the House. And I think, look, that's the different face of Parliament, and that's what we need. You only change institutions, I think, by getting broader diversity in, because um, people have a huge uh, his, have a huge impact on the institutions and also what's acceptable behavior. And so I'm all for more women in politics. I, I've said across party lines, I'm happy uh, to support women in politics. I did a campaign, Run Like a Girl, which is you know just supporting women and girls who want to get into politics. And you might say, well, girls, how are they going to get into politics? Well, at one of the events we had, uh, we had a girl that stood up and said, you know what, I think I'm going to run for my student council as president. And she won. Yeah. And then I met her later on and she was really excited. And at that same event, uh, a woman stood up and said, you know what, I think I'm going to run for mayor. And and she, I think she felt the solidarity because all these women in the room, she slightly regretted it. So she tried to take it back, but then she ran anyway and she won. And so I think it makes a difference. I think it makes a difference in the tone of conversation. I think it makes a difference in the experiences that women bring. That doesn't mean all women are the same. But I think that we just need diversity, and that's broader than just women. I mean, you know what? Parliament needs to look like the way Canada looks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not the way it looked, you know, 100 years ago where all the, it was all men sitting in Parliament or even, you know, a, a decade ago where or even now where it's still, you know, predominantly male. Uh, it, we haven't reached 50 percent. Um, and we need way more diversity in terms of racialized Canadians, in terms of indigenous Canadians. Um and that's just, I think that's really important because I think you also make better decisions and you're better able to reflect the will of Canadians. Mm -hmm. So proportional representation has been shown to make governments or parliaments much more inclusive. I know the liberals at one point were in favor of that. Is, I mean, is that worth looking at again? Well, I think that, you, I mean, originally the idea was to uh, have the last, I think it was 2015 was going to be the last first past the post election. Uh, that, you know, for, yes, a variety of reasons that didn't happen. But I, I think we need to be looking at all the different mechanisms for building, uh, you know, a parliament or, or a system that reflects more the will of Canadians. So whether it's looking at electoral reform or, I mean, in my case, I was just talking about uh, online about like, why can't we do uh, hybrid parliament where, you know, if you're a parent, you got to be home with a sick kid, you're able to participate virtually. I think like systems are only going to change if you change the system. <laughs> you can't expect something better. I mean, you can tweak it. And so I, I think that these are important conversations. I also participated in something very fascinating. Well, I, I was, uh, I just, I mean, I was participated in that I, I saw it in action. And this was a citizens assembly. Uh, and this was a group of Canadians that were uh, a representative sample of Canadians who decided to step up and participate in uh, a uh, assembly looking at online harm and how to address online harm with social media companies. And it's a model that's been used in different countries where you bring together you know, regular Canadians to have real discussions about issues, to provide input to government. And I think we need to do that more. I think we need to consult in a different way where we don't 
you know, in some ways, I think, you know, the tendency is to kind of have a sense of what the question is, maybe even the answer, and then bring people in. uh, And they're generally stakeholders or people who care greatly about this issue. And so you're not getting a representative sample of Canadians. Um, And I think that you, you just make better decisions when you bring democracy closer to people to, you know, regular people who are going through their day, but who actually care greatly about these issues and issues that impact their lives. Um, So whatever we can do uh, to do that is something that I'm very committed to and and making people, you know, recognize how important democracy is and how fortunate we are to live in Canada and to really own their democracy. So just looking at your, you know, your two terms in office and you were minister of two fairly large portfolios, environment and industry, Despite the trolling, I mean, what were the positives for you? You know, there's so many positives being in politics. I mean, just start, like, first of all, you're you're a member of parliament, so you represent your riding, and it's the ability to make a difference in your local community, to respond to people who are, you know, it can be, you know, they're trying to get a family member or spouse into the country and they're having issues with the immigration system or, you know, we brought in a lot of refugees and helping them resettle or through the pandemic supporting, you know, members of your community, little small businesses that were really struggling. So there's the very local piece um, and then there's the huge piece. Like I feel extraordinarily fortunate that I was minister, the first minister of environment and climate change, where we had a government that prioritized climate change. And we were able to do really big, difficult things like get a price on pollution. And I think a lot of people thought we could, you know, it could never be done. And now it's held at the Supreme Court. Uh, the, the legislation was upheld and the right, uh, the ability of the government to have a price on pollution because pollution knows no borders. Uh, I think those are really important things. Some of the most special moments, though, were definitely on the land with Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. It was just so special going to places, whether whether it was a Deje or Tainanenene, where we established a new national park, or going to a whole range of different places in Inuit Nunungat with Inuit. It was really that was really special because you really appreciate your country, but also you understand. You hear from indigenous peoples what the land means to them mm-hmm. and their relationship with the land. And I think that is part of reconciliation. Until we can bridge this divide and really understand, you know, the perspectives of indigenous peoples and work with them. And the land is certainly very important to indigenous peoples. And often they're a lot closer than regular Canadians to the land, to the animals, to uh, the water. Um, I think that, you know, there's going to be this divide. So that was a, that was incredibly amazing, especially when we were able to protect some very special places based on a model um, of indigenous conservation areas. So based on what, you know, the, the, the First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples on the land wanted. I'm curious about your thoughts on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act, which was passed by the last parliament, and what impact do you see that having on the environment? Look, I think it's really uh, critical. It's not just a declaration. I mean, obviously having you know, legislation, declarations are important. It's actually how do you approach things? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whether it's working in real true partnership with Indigenous peoples to protect the land or on the development side, I was also the minister who was responsible for reforming how we approved major projects and really thinking about what is consultation with Indigenous peoples, what is free and informed consent. Those are very critical issues. Um, and it's it's 
as I say, it's not just what the law says, it's actually how do you approach things and how do you get better outcomes? So I think that I'm just always based on it. I always focus on outcomes and I think you can get to a much better place if you're actually working in real partnership with indigenous peoples. Um, and that I think is, is a critical part uh, of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In terms of the environment, we're clearly in a decade that a lot needs to get done. Within that realm, what gives you hope? I, what gives me hope is I think people are reasonable at the end of the day. It was kind of Jean Chrétien said to me, Canadians are reasonable, be reasonable. And I always thought about that when we were trying to do hard things. Um, you know, when it was putting a price on pollution or bring together a whole range of different stakeholders to protect nature or bring in a new, the new Impact Assessment Act. Uh, I think that, you know, people, they value the land, the water, the air. Um, Canadians understand uh, that climate change is real. I mean, I think at the end of the day, people want action, but it's really up to governments to be brave. And so uh, as optimistic as I am, <laughs> I think that, you know, governments need to respond and they need to lead and they're going to have to make some d tough decisions. But in a way, it shouldn't even be tough because there is no economy if you don't have a planet to live on. But beyond that, I mean, I think we all we have the opportunity right now to choose solutions that will help ensure uh, sustainability um, that will mean cleaner air and cleaner water, but but most importantly, will ensure a sustainable future for our kids and grandkids. So that's what gives me optimism. Um, I also am very optimistic because young people care greatly about the environment and climate change. I mean, from it's sad that they've had to grow up with the threat of climate change, and that's always been present. But at the same time, they look at the world very differently. I have three kids, and you know, sometimes they just think it's bananas, the things that, you know, what adults might focus on without missing the key issue, which the issue is climate change. It's the thing. And we all need to wake up every day and figure out how we're going to save the only planet we, we have. Great. And just keeping an eye on the clock, and I know you need to get going, but I have just two quick questions for you. One is I was watching, I follow you on Twitter and was watching with interest as you were swimming in the various coasts of Canada to celebrate a big birthday this year. And I'm just curious about I mean, I, so we have a sauna and a lake and we plunge in our lake, but you actually swim distances in cold water. And I'm just curious where that started and, and why. Uh, I just love the water. Um, it probably started my love for, I guess, colder water swimming started when I was very, very young. My dad is Irish. Um, all my cousins uh, on his side, uh, everyone lives in Ireland yeah. and we would go swim in the Irish Sea. And I will tell you, the Irish Sea is not warm. It's bracing, um, yeah. And so I, I just, but I love the, I, I love uh, open water. Uh, I mean, I love pools too. I was a competitive swimmer, but just being out in the water, whether it's in lakes or oceans and your head's down and you're, you can't hear any noise except for kind of the churning of the water. Um, and it's, I find it meditative. People try to, you know, they, they do, you know, mindful meditation. I, I'm very terrible at that, but I'm actually just get me in the, in the water, um, in open water where I can swim. I, I find that's, uh, it's just very calming. Um, and it also reminds me, it does remind me how fortunate we are to live in Canada. We have like the, we have five great lakes. We've got three oceans. We have the longest coastline in the world. And we really need to do everything we can to protect it. And also we need a commitment to ensure that everyone has access 
to to clean water, to swim, drink, and fish. Um, and so it's just something I love. I will continue to do. It was actually very fun during the pandemic, and I was like, gosh, what can I do for my 50th birthday? Mm-hmm. And so swimming the Great Lakes and then adding as a bonus, I was able to do the Atlantic, Pacific, and the Arctic, where I did not swim a long distance in the Arctic because one of the rules of my swims for uh, this this challenge I set to myself yeah. was to um, – to make sure that I didn't wear a wetsuit. Ah, so so it, was a, it was a shorter swim um, in the Arctic, but it was still great. And uh, it was also for a good cause, uh, for a great organization, Swim, Drink, Fish, mm-hmm. that's committed to clean water, um, including working with Indigenous people. So it was fun. It was a fundraiser. That was off Baffin Island, is that right? It was off, uh, we were, I was in Nunavut, and it was just outside of Ayutik, one of our mm-hmm. national, one of our national parks. Wow, well. well. That's brave, very brave. Um, and my last question, which I ask everybody, is can you tell us your favorite place in Canada? Maybe a happy place that you go to in your mind or have fond memories of or a place you like to get away to? The Arctic is very, very special to me, mm-hmm. in particular Inuit Nuningad. And because of the time I've spent there, not just in beautiful in beautiful places, but also with Inuit and and I'm so worried about you know these these incredible places where you know you have uh, you have ice um, you have animals um, and I, I worry that and you have an amazing culture and that you know I, as you look at climate change where what is going to be the impact um, on these areas and then the people who live there and will Canadians be able to like my kids or grandkids in the future be able to to you know go visit and meet with Inuit living in these places that so I mean I think that's very special but I think all our parks too I love our national parks I've been to so many of them I'm not going to single any out I think they're all very special in their own unique ways awesome well Catherine McKenna thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast it's great thanks very much I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did like it and want to help us reach as big an audience as possible, please give us a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a big difference. Thank you. And be sure to subscribe too so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this edition of Explore. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just been a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling you about We have Simpson about June 10th, with the fur brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit or history is very strong. Yeah, we flew over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 100